You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com, and some of them may even make the show. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll write myself a note. Um, I uh, actually, apropos, what would be like the perfect kind of question to send in? Somebody just sent me. Let's get a little bit into the Torah portion, but um, but I'm just going to write myself a note over here. Um, I was just uh, I was studying with. Uh, I have uh, some friends. Uh, they are my senior citizen um, couple. They're actually in their 90s. Uh, shout out to Herschel. His 91st birthday is today. So I sit in their living room. We talk. They enjoy. And I have to sort of pull and prod to get like some fascinating questions out of them. And they ask great stuff. So they asked me a question today. Um, and we're going to get to that question later. Let's see if I can do two things at once. I am not so good at multitasking, but I think I got it. So, so let's talk. We, we got some time, we'll, we'll spread our wings a little bit, get into some interesting ideas in this week's Torah portion, things I think I personally think are important to talk about, certainly to have the conversation. Um, we are starting the second book. There's five books in the Torah. We are starting the second book. The first book was Genesis. We finished that one last week, and now we're starting the book of Exodus. So Nachmanides says a very interesting point. The book of Genesis is the creation of the world, while the book of Exodus is the creation of the Jewish people. And it was, it's a, an interesting thought. And it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, Joseph coming down to Egypt. That's all part of the world being created. But the Jewish people as a nation, that creation starts when we're slaves in Egypt, and then we'll be taken out of Egypt, and then we'll go through the Red Sea, and then we'll get the Torah from God, and then we'll build a tabernacle for God's presence. That is the creation of the Jewish nation. So it's a very interesting, different focus from the first book to the second book. So what happens? So uh, we start out in Egypt. We come down, when we move down, when Jacob and the, and the 70 soul and, J- and Joseph's brothers all move down into Egypt, so Joseph has a city for them. The name of the city is Goshen. That's the city they live in. Some say that property was the same property that an earlier pharaoh had given to Sarah when Abraham and Sarah came down to Egypt. And, and uh, the pharaoh wanted to marry Sarah, and the angel came and beat him up. So to show everybody that he hadn't touched her and that he was okay with them, he gave them a piece of property. That piece of property happened to have been Goshen. That's the property he gives. You would call um, the area that the Jews lived in, at least at the beginning, till they started spreading out, you would call that a ghetto. So the question is, and I think it's something interesting to think about, is a ghetto a good thing or a bad thing? 
So a little bit, let's look historically before we jump in and automatically scream it at your computer, because you know what I'm going to say. Um, historically, we were in ghettos a lot. We were. Any time we were out of the land of Israel, we were in ghettos. And interesting, in Europe, in the earlier days in Europe, where there were also ghettos, I know ghetto has a connotation, uh, you know, getting, you know, with the, with the Warsaw ghetto and stuff and, and, and the impossible living conditions, but let's just take it back. In the earlier days of the ghetto, um, the ghetto was locked from the inside. As the Jewish people weren't keeping people in, it was just a protective mode to keep everybody else out. We were protected, we could live, we were amongst our own. If you like that statement, they don't like that statement. And uh, we were allowed to live as Jews. And no one bothered us. It had nothing to do with if you were a traveling salesman and you had to leave to go to work. It had nothing to do if you had to go out to the farms or, or whatever you did. But you came home at the end of the day and everybody's living amongst friends, amongst brothers. Um, in Israel today, you'll ask people that make Aliyah, one of the most beautiful things they appreciate about it is they say that I know when I'm walking down the street, everybody's Jewish. So there's, there's an interesting what to be said, just at first blush. What's so beautiful about living in a ghetto? Even the neighborhood I live in, by the way, here in Detroit, the neighborhood I live in is called a ghetto. It's been called a ghetto for 30 years, at least, even longer. It was called a ghetto before I moved to town. What happened was uh, in Detroit, its history is um, that a Jewish neighborhood lasted between five and ten years, starting in downtown Detroit. I don't know all the streets, 12th and Hastings. Uh, there are better people that know all the details. And, and, and people kept moving and kept changing neighborhoods. And you just didn't last long. You almost couldn't build buildings or schools because you were afraid that the neighborhood wouldn't last. Till they moved into the Oak Park area, and there were many people who had already jumped to West Bloomfield, which is about a half an hour drive from Oak Park. That's where I live. And, um, and they, they, they actually worked with loans and other stuff to, to help people stay settled in one neighborhood. And it's debatable exactly what, what's the anchor. There's a high school and a post-high school, which is probably the best anchor to the neighborhood. Everybody wanted to stay, and we didn't move out. So it was called the ghetto. So again, does it mean it's, there's only Jews living in that neighborhood? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. I have a public school across the street from me. But the idea of being in an area that just has um, Jewish people is an interesting idea because religious-wise, everyone's going to be the same. Children going to similar schools. Your children are, are again, yeah, going to synagogues. The synagogues are in the neighborhood. It's, it's everything is condensed and safe, and people can live the way they want to live their life. Now, that sounds familiar. I can't remember. Oh, yeah, people want to live the way they, the way they live their life. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really taken for my promo, but that's okay. That's fine. Um, later on in history, the ghetto was used to lock the Jews in. In other words, the, 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 the different uh, people, the Christians, other ones living in those areas did not want the Jews spreading out. So there was the ghetto. So in Egypt, we started out living in a ghetto. And then, amazingly enough, the verse says we tried to start moving out of the ghetto, out of Goshen, spread out across Egypt, become like the Egyptians. And God did not like that. As a matter of fact, historically, every time the Jewish people 
start to try to become like everybody else, again, I'm just, I'm just quoting you a verse. You don't like what I say. That's okay. Just open up your Bible. Open up, read the first uh, 10 or 12 verses of Exodus, and you'll see right away that I, I'm just repeating to you what it says in the verse. So I'm not asking you to like it. I'm just asking you to believe it's true. So as soon as we start moving out into the population of Egypt and try to become like the Egyptians and sort of make it a melting pot, God says the Jewish people are not going to disappear. If the only way to make sure the Jewish people don't disappear is to make the Egyptians hate the Jews for no reason, then God says that's what I'm going to do. Sure enough. A uh, new pharaoh comes and he makes us slaves and he, they kill the, they tell the midwives to kill the Jewish babies and they throw the babies in the river and we're enslaved and beaten. All because, according to the verse, all because we were trying to spread out to be like the Egyptians. And God says the Jewish people are not going to disappear. Some will disappear. Not everybody. Um, again, uh, if you remember my guest from last week, he himself recognized that if his daughters do not have a, a, a Jewish education in a Jewish school, what's to keep them Jewish? Why would they stay Jewish? And they'll disappear. So yes, some, many will disappear, but God is not letting the Jewish nation as a whole disappear. So either we make sure we stay Jewish or God will make sure we stay Jewish. And... Um, you, 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 could, you could just keep looking through history. I, I bet to a certain extent in Spain, uh, you had the same problem. What's fascinating is, you got to look at the history of it. During the Inquisition, the, the problem was, um, the, the Inquisition was not going after people. Again, if you read all these stories about Spain in the 1300s and, and 1400s, where they, they hunted down Jews that were pretending to be Christians and they killed them. The decree of the Inquisition was never for Jews that practiced Judaism. It was for Jews that were pretending to be Christians. And that's what the Christian population didn't like. You, if we see you're a Jew, we have no problem. But if, you're, but if you're Jewish, but you pretend not to be Jewish, that they couldn't handle. So again, you had all these, all these families in Spain trying to not be Jewish, and they were hunted down. God's not letting the Jewish people disappear. So eventually we're expelled. Okay, good. So the religious Jews leave because we're going to disappear in Spain because of all the different stuff going on over there. Um, and actually things, again, I'm not saying that the Middle Ages was the best place for Jews, but as long as we stayed in our ghettos, we were fine. Then what happens in Austria first and then in Germany, we, uh, we decided it would be very important to be just like the, the non-Jews, just like the Gentiles. And different rabbis forewarned what's going to happen if you try to become like the, like, the, like the nations of the world. You try to be like the nations of the world, you forget you're Jewish. What's going to happen is that God's not going to have to make them hate you. And of course, we know about the Holocaust, which is, was terrible and, and six million killed. But it was interesting enough. It was, uh, it, was, it was foretold, different commentaries in the late 1800s. And even in the 1920s, when nobody could imagine, you speak to anybody, that's when he's alive anymore, in the 1930s, it's alive today, they say no one believed that a Holocaust was going to take place. They couldn't believe it. It's impossible. But God is going to make sure the Jewish people continue to exist. 
And if a ghetto is the best way of doing it, it's the best way of doing it. So that's one thought I wanted to touch on this week. Continuing, though, back into the Torah portion. So what happens is that, um, that the Pharaoh was concerned. First of all, he didn't want the Jewish people increasing. Second of all, his astrologers had told him, you got to worry about this guy, Moses. There's this, uh, the, he didn't know his name, but the Jewish Messiah is going to be born. And you got to do something about it. So Pharaoh makes a decree. First the slavery, then the, have the midwives kill the baby boys, then fly through all the boys in the river. And again, Pharaoh makes his plans. God makes his plans. But what's interesting, forget, it's not just that Pharaoh makes his plans and God says, I'm not listening to you. Even righteous Jews can make their plans and God says, I'm not listening to you. What was such a plan? So the plan was actually Moses' parents. Moses' parents were Amram and Yocheved. So Amram is the leader of the Jewish people, and he sees all these crazy plans that the Pharaoh is doing, and he says to his wife Yocheved, he says, we, we can't handle this. This slavery is too intense. As a nation, we cannot handle it. I am going to force God to end this slavery. So again, Pharaoh makes his plans, Amr makes his plans, God laughs at everybody. Uh, because the Pharaoh is going to end up raising Moses, and Amram is going to have Moses. Even though Amram says to his wife, I am going to force God to make sure that uh, the Jewish people will no longer exist. Either he frees us or end the Jewish nation. How does Amram do this? He t- again, he's the leader. So he tells his wife, we are going to separate Officially divorced, not officially divorced. And I'm the leader. If we get divorced, if we separate, all the husband and wives will separate. No more children. No more children. No Jewish nation. So God is going to have to come and save us. So again, Amram makes his plans. Pharaoh makes his plans, his plans of, uh, of, uh, of genocide. He chooses, uh, Amram wants to choose no children. But again, God laughs at his plans. How does God change it? It's really, I guess it's also funny if you think about it. God sends a message, like a prophecy, to Amram's daughter. She's all of five years old. And she goes to her father Amram and she says, you are worse than Pharaoh. Now you have to remember, here's an older, righteous, religious leader. So those of us that have children... So you're blessed to have children, and you might have a wonderful four- or five-year-old. But if the four- or five-year-old accuses you of doing something wrong, for the most part, hopefully you'll just laugh at the child. Because for the most part, what is a four-, five-, six-, ten-, fourteen-, eighteen-year-old actually know about life anyways? Along comes little Miriam, and she says to her father, You are worse than Pharaoh. Really now? Why? Well, Pharaoh is decreeing only on the boys. Your decree is on girls also. Pharaoh's decree, it will work, it won't work. He's trying to kill everybody. Who says he'll be able to kill everybody? Who says God will let him kill everybody? But if husband and wife are not together, well, that's working. There ain't going to be no kids. So Amram, in an amazing level of humility, had the ability to see that his daughter was right. Did he know that it was a prophecy? Perhaps. He may have known it was a prophecy. 
but uh, because she says afterwards that if you have a kid, you and mommy will have will give birth to the next leader of the Jewish people. That for sure he believes is a prophecy. So he had the the ability to say, I made a mistake. Most of us, when we make mistakes, we make excuses. I mean, I just read something in the paper. Crazy. <laughs> A person, some politician here locally said something extremely inappropriate. So what happens? He, he immediately denies it. He changes the story, tries to reword it. People don't stand up for what they said. They don't say he made a mistake because he'll probably lose his job if he, or he will. I mean, I'm sure he's going to have to step down. What he said was completely outrageous, which is fine. You say something wrong, own up to it, right? People are so afraid to own up to anything. So in any case... Amram, who tried his way of starting up with God, and Pharaoh tries his way of starting up with God, God laughs at both of them. You're going to have Moses, Amram, even though you think it's a bad idea. You, Pharaoh, trying to um, murder the Messiah. You're trying to murder Moses. Not happening. You're not only going to going to save him, you're going to raise him, you're going to pay for for whatever it takes to raise a child in a palace, all that you're going to be raising the one who's going to cause your downfall. So talking about children, um, I saw just uh, an interesting article this week, and that is tuition. You ever look at any of the, uh, at any of the Jewish uh, papers, online, forums, every once in a while there's always a discussion of tuition. Look, I'm in a school, I raise funds, um, we have a little donate button on my page. You want to help continue the education of, uh, of, uh, of well-deserving children of an amazing school that basically has to raise, um, I don't know, a million and a half, whatever it takes a year, two million, and we're just uh, small potatoes compared to others. Tuition is always a conversation, and it's interesting where that conversation takes place. My guest last week, um, thank God I can afford to pay high tuitions for private school for his daughters. It's beautiful. Um, people in Orthodox circles that don't have really any any funds, schools take them anyways. We do. Jewish education is so important, we will raise the money to make sure that your children are educated. The ones that have the greatest difficulty is that in between that, I don't want to say middle income, I don't want to say middle class, it's even above middle class, People could be earning a couple hundred thousand. You have a couple of children in school. They're going to be asking you for forty, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year in tuition, and then they're going to come back for donations. And it's not pre-tax. You know what I mean? It's, it's not. Uh, you're not saving any money. It's not a donation that would be, for the most part, it's illegal to use tuition for donations to get a, a tax uh, a tax credit on. It doesn't happen. So, so the question is, what's one to do? A Jewish education, as again, we spoke last week with my friend Sam, a Jewish education is, is most important to make sure that the continuation of the Jewish people goes on. That there's nothing that your children want to keep being Jewish if they don't even know what be, being Jewish means. They got to be educated. The problem is your average um, Jewish day school, again, not the Orthodox day schools, those have a whole different structure of what it costs to educate a kid. It's hard to explain why in a in an Orthodox day school, you know, anywhere between four and six thousand probably covers. Even if they charge a little bit more, that's just a way of covering 
um, other expenses because you have teachers and, and they're paying them very little, so they have to give them a tuition break and not pay tuition at all. You want to tell me 8000 fine. That's like top of the line. But these schools are looking for eighteen, twenty, twenty-two thousand without blinking, and they're, even if they're giving you a scholarship, the scholarship will be half that. So again, your middle income—that's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. You have a couple kids, and you got to do this every year for the next ten, twelve years. It's a lot of money. It's and and the people doing it are not taking vacations, and they're they're not buying fancy cars. They're scraping by. So the article was very fascinating. There are many people now that the reason that they want to make Aliyah, that the reason they want to move to the land of Israel is simply because in Israel you get a Jewish education. And while it's not free, but the numbers they were saying, you know, there's like registration fees. You're paying 400, 500, 600. You're paying pennies, pennies to give your kid a beautiful Jewish education. And the schools in Israel are very good. Right? You have, look, that's uh, startup capital, you know what I mean? Like uh, the, 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 the children do well, Jewish environment, which is what these people want when they give their kids a Jewish education. And, and they can get jobs in Israel. First of all, you can do stuff online anyways. But they have quite competitive uh, salaries and jobs. Now, of course, it's hard to move to the other end of the world if you have family in America. But for many, many people, um, that becomes a... a, a an easy choice. Yes, it's a language and whatever, but if if a Jewish education is important and you're scraping by, yeah, why wouldn't you move to Israel when tuition is no longer an issue? Is it, you know, it's not America. It's got its own issues. Every country has its own issues, and, and we've had people on in the past to talk about it. But certainly when we're talking about children and we're talking about education and the importance of educating our children and and money being an issue so the way to take care of that is is to move to Israel we got your tuition covered so i i wonder you know it's something interesting to think about in the modern orthodox world where they must where they want to educate their children and even perhaps in the conservative and i don't know how much in the reform world but perhaps in the conservative world if an edu- if a jewish education is important to them it gets hard. It's very expensive. So Israel becomes a fantastic choice. So who knows, next 20, 30 years, nobody ever knows what's going to happen, right? Look at the climate change. And again, I'm not telling you what side of the fence I'm on. But, um, but it is interesting that every time they make their prophecies and they put a date down, because if you can't put down a date, why should I listen to you? And the date comes and goes and things don't seem to be so bad. And who am I to complain if we haven't had you know, any major uh, freezing cold weather. Even though last Shabbos was a bitter rain, it was cold, it was nasty, but hello, we're in January. But my children are looking forward. Um, hopefully this weekend uh, things will change. We should be um, in line for a nice snowstorm. A good four, five, six inches would be fantastic. Now, not on the road so much. I prefer my snow on the grass and on the hills, but uh, off the sidewalks, I have to shovel and off the street where it's hard to drive. But I am prepared. First, I took my minivan a couple weeks ago before the last time we traveled, made sure I got all four new tires. That's good to go. And I actually drive a little. People make fun of the car I drive. It's a uh, looks like a Matchbox car. It's actually a Scion. It's uh, not young. And I brought in yesterday, I knew I needed tires. It was just dangerous to drive around on my tires. 
So great guy at the tire place. He looks at my tire. He said, yeah, these are really bad. I said, well, hello. That's why I'm here getting tires. So he said to me, I did not know this. I'm sure people will tell me I made a mistake, but I don't think so. He says, do you have any leaking problems? I said, yeah, the, the driver tire. Every time I turn around, I'm putting air into it. Oh, do you have like any shaking of the steering wheel? I said, as a matter of fact, it does shake uh, pretty much. He says, you need new rims. So I said, oh, you know, like every smart person walking into a tire place. I said, ah, so I'll go to a junkyard. I'll get myself some new rims. He says, you know, we have a sale, and you really need all four rims. You can't just get two. We have a sale and a rebate. And I said, you know what? If you think I got time to run to a junkyard or to tell my mechanic to run to a junkyard and another day buy a mechanic for a few dollars, it was more than a few dollars, but it was worth it. Um, I got four new rims. For me, that's pretty exciting. I don't get too many new things in my car. And I got my four new rims. I drive out of the place. The car hasn't driven like that for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, which is giving you an idea how old the car is. It drove beautiful. So, of course, my wife likes to drive the little car. Not sure why. I like the minivan. So I say to her, I say, Bas, I said, so do you see how much nicer the car is driving now? And she says, Ma, I don't know. It's, to me, it's all the same. I said, okay, trust me on this one. It's driving beautiful. It's much safer now. So we are prepared for this week's upcoming snowstorm. So all, all good. So um, so let's let's move a little bit more into the Torah portion, get into a few more details as, as our time is flying by. And interesting, we have a long conversation, God and Moses. Moses makes his way, okay, we... we Okay, Moses is growing up in the palace. He's going to go out. He's going to see a Egyptian trying to kill a Jew. Moses kills that Egyptian. Moses has to flee Egypt, and he makes his way eventually to a place called Midian, and he becomes a shepherd for Jethro, and he marries one of Jethro's daughters. And then he makes his way into the desert, and God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And God speaks to Moses, and God says, Okay, Moses... You're on your way down. You will be the leader. And Moses actually argues with God for a week. God is busy telling Moses, Moses, you're the guy. You are the only one that can take the Jewish people out. And Moses says, no, I don't know how to speak. It seems Moses thought he had to be a great orator. He had to convince the Pharaoh. And God is trying to tell Moses, I don't need you to convince anybody. But you are the one I am going to talk to. Even when God agrees to let Moses... Um, and uh, have Aaron help him out, that, that Aaron will be the spokesman. But God is only speaking to Moses. So after a week of conversation, God has made it abundantly clear that Moses, you're the man. Now, um, what's interesting to think about, and if you listen to the, to the earlier show, um, we'll talk about the leadership qualities of Moses and what makes him a great leader and what makes a person a great leader. Um, almost all of us, especially if we're in any type of work environment, um, if we feel that we are important, that the boss can't survive without us, we take advantage. It's, uh, it's human nature. The boss needs me. I'm going to come in a half an hour late. What's he going to do? Yell at me. He's going to lose his biggest, uh, his biggest client. We, we as people take advantage of such things. That's how we are. We all believe that we're irreplaceable. Whatever, not all of us, but many of us believe we're so special. And if, if we're right that we're irreplaceable, uh, many of us unfortunately take advantage of the situation. 
So here you have Moses. Um, he should be irreplaceable because God has told him no one else can do the job but you. You're it. So interesting what happens. So Moses is, um, is uh, he goes back to Jethro and he, he tells Jethro, I'm just going to visit my family. He doesn't tell him he's going to take the Jewish people out. Jethro would never let. And he takes his wife and his two kids with him. But one of his children was just born and he did not circumcise that child. Okay, traveling in the desert, the law is if it's dangerous, then you don't have to circumcise till you're in a safe place. To travel with a child, just circumcise, certainly in those days, riding a donkey, what are they riding already in, in a hot desert, is dangerous. So why does Moses give, a, give, give his son the circumcision and wait a couple days? Because God said, you got to go now, no delaying. So Moses travels to the desert, he gets to an inn that's fairly close to Egypt. I, it would seem that if you were, were to give the circumcision immediately, it wouldn't be dangerous. But Moses does not immediately um, work on circumcising his son. He starts to unpack and unload. And God doesn't like that. You're delaying a circumcision. So God sends an angel to kill Moses. But the idea of sending the angel was it would be clear how the angel was uh, starting up with Moses that you didn't circumcise your kid. So that means Moses is going to die for delaying a circumcision on his child. So now this is a little bit problematic because I thought Moses is the only guy who could who could take the Jewish people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's the only one that can do the plagues and he'll be the only one who can uh, receive the Torah from God if he's the only one well, you need Moses. Sometimes when your best people, uh, there's a little uh, a little infraction. They do something a little bit wrong. You have to look the other way. We all look the other way sometimes. But God is getting ready to kill Moses when he's the only guy who can take the Jewish people out. So what gives? So it's really a very important thing to think about. Um, when it comes to God, there's no such thing as letting things slide. Now, it is true God is merciful, and God has lots of patience. But no one should ever think, at the end of the day, when he's standing before God, as we say after 120, that God will say, well, you know, you're such a good guy. We'll ignore some of these things. God ignores nothing. You know, nothing slides by. And if Moses, by delaying the circumcision, um, has done something wrong, then, then it doesn't slide. It doesn't slide, and Moses won't be able to do the job. Now, Tzipora comes and saves the day. She sounds a little bit, uh, makes somebody a little queasy. They didn't have the nice um, knives that we use nowadays for circumcision. She just found a sharp rock, and she goes over to her son, and she circumcised the son. Some say um, she started it, maybe Moses finished it, uh, or she found somebody else to do it. That's debatable if a lady could do a circumcision or not. That's a, that's a Talmudic law. That's a conversation for another day. But in any case, it, it's important to know there's no such thing as letting things slide. So we, if I had a mailbag to open today, um, I would ask you the following question. This was, again, my shout-out to my friend Herschel, whose 91st birthday was today. So when I sit in their living room, so I talk about the Torah portion, and we you know, talk about family and stuff, and uh, I, I, I always try to encourage them to ask me something. I like to hear what, you know, I like to talk, but even more, I like to hear 
what's bothering you? What is a question that you have, something you want to know? So, um, so Herschel asked me the following. He said, do we ever find anybody in the Bible that argues with God like Moses? I told you, Moses has a back and forth with God, and God gets angry in the end, and Moses gets a punishment because of it. He doesn't get to be the high priest. His brother Aaron becomes the high priest. Uh, but Moses really argues with God for a week. Do we ever find anybody in, in biblical history that actually argues with God? And I said, you know, I don't think so. Again, if you think I'm wrong, please feel free to let me know. Jonah and the whale, he doesn't want to do the job, so he runs away. Even Isaiah and Jeremiah, they have to be trained in, and maybe they say something's wrong. Um, but we don't really find them. Again, all good Jewish leaders have to be able to defend the Jewish people. They have to be able to stick out their necks and tell God that, uh, that uh, we got to do this for the Jewish people, you got to do that for the Jewish people, you got to help the Jewish people. So, but this arguing, this back and forth conversation of arguing for a week, I think Moses is the only one. And again, I'm always willing to be corrected, but, um, but if I'm beginning my mailbag, which we'll do in our, in our longer show, that would be the question that I would have asked. And it was asked again by my friend Herschel. And uh, I don't know, it's an it's interesting thing to think about. Okay, so I got one of my hand signals, and I forgot to tell you guys. Are you ready for my poster? We are ready for the poster. The poster's right behind me. I think I have a, it's a little earlier than usual for the poster, but I have good reason for it. So this, this week's letter is the letter Tess, or Tet. Um, it, I guess it looks like a fish hook. It's uh, probably a pretty good description or, a, uh, or the at sign if you sort of unrolled it a little bit. It makes a T sound. It is the ninth letter of the alphabet, and it's, therefore its numerical value is nine. And I had an interesting word this week. The word is tam. Tam means taste. It could also mean reason, but tam means taste. So I, uh, I saw, again, another interesting piece of information this week. Uh, about Jews and food. Now, that shouldn't be a hard conversation because we, you know, if you have a Jewish grandmother, she makes chicken soup and kenedloch, and, and we've talked about Jewish things, but this was actually a fascinating list. So, for example, as my time is ticking, um, did you know that oranges, the, the orange trees, which were, were, were really more Mediterranean, um, or, or northern uh, Africa, made their way into Europe because of Jewish merchants. Part of the reason was that the, on, on the Sukkot holiday, we need the citron or the etrog. So once people understood that they got used to delivering and shipping these citrons, these, these, uh, these types of fruit, so they said, hey, People want this kind of fruit. I can deliver other kinds of fruit. I know how to... Uh, it, was, it was important for Jews to cultivate, to raise citrons. Well, once you could do one type of, uh, of uh, citrus growing in Spain, so do another one. So the oranges uh, made its way into Europe because of the juice. I thought that was an interesting thought. Um, more important, of course, for me is coffee. You know, as a quick story, um, this morning, um, I'm driving to school. I take the kids to school in the morning. I'm getting ready to get on the highway, and my wife calls, you forgot your coffee. Now, I live for my, I don't want to say I live for coffee, I live for, for my children, I live for my family, I live for my Torah, but, uh, but yeah, I live for my coffee. 
and I'm a snob with my coffee, and I like a nice brewed Nespresso cup or two every morning in my mug. No sugar, a little bit of milk, and I forgot my coffee. So my wife says, you forgot your coffee. Now, otherwise, I'm going to have to get instant coffee at, in school. That's terrible. That's, I might as well not drink it. Anyways, I, uh, she says, maybe you should come home and get it. And I said, you think I should come home? And she says, yeah. So I quickly... And didn't have to make a turnaround. Instead of hanging a left under the highway, I made a right and swung around. And I got my coffee, which is important. And what does coffee have to do with Jewish? So interesting enough, a lot of coffee. Obviously, Ethiopia is one of the original places for coffee. But Mexico is a place that had coffee. And the original or one of the first um, the first coffee house, well, I missed half the story. But, uh, but one of the factories to create coffee... Um, was actually started by a, a, a secret Jew from Portugal. We talked about those. They were called the Moranos. We talked about them a little bit earlier. And so production of coffee that made its way to Europe was, again, started by Jews. And one more quick one is tomatoes, by the way. Tomatoes, uh, people didn't eat tomatoes because they thought it was nightshade. Um, but Thomas Jefferson's doctor convinced Thomas Jefferson's father to eat a tomato, and he even got Thomas Jefferson to eat publicly a tomato. So there we have time and taste, and I got one minute left. Here's a, a uh, well, you know what? Instead of, instead of going into a story, I'll give you one more important food that has a Jewish background, and that is my other favorite food. That's chocolate. So, um, oh, see, I got the stories wrong. The coffee was Ethiopia. The Mexican story I just told you, that was chocolate. I read my notes wrong. So just in case I got you all confused, um, it was Jews who, who moved the, the coffee up into Europe. But chocolate actually came from a, a secret Jew from Portugal, and he got it from Mexico into, um, into Europe. Anyways, my day is, is done. We talked so many things today. We talked leadership. We talked caring, concern. We talked about children and tuition and ghettos and all kinds of stuff. Anyways, I hope you're enjoying our new, our new, for, our new format. Thank you to our wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I couldn't do without you. Thank you to our wonderful production team. We got Kelsey, Angel, Stephen, and Andy. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi C. Jacobson. You've been listening to NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.